This is all theater. This is all just political theater. Political theater. Political theater. Pure political theater. Theater. Political theater. The nefarious, significant, and protracted political, political, political theater for political theater's sake. I yield back. From Washington, this is Political Theater. Roll Call's review of the spectacle of politics on Capitol Hill and across the country. I'm Jason Day. There's always a special election going on in this country. And although the presidential race for 2020 seems to get a lot of the attention, there are also races that we follow very closely here at the Political Theater Podcast. So much that Simone Pathé went and spent most of her weekend in North Carolina, and she has come back with a, a report, a story in Roll Call, and this podcast, and she's going to talk about some of the uh, dynamics of that race. Simone, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. And before we get started, I just wanted to, uh, I, I wanted our listeners to be placed in uh, North Carolina's third district. So we, ha- we you brought back a little uh, sound. We have a very special sound effect here. And Simone, what, what were we just listening to? Frogs. Frogs. Now, uh, the way that you described them earlier was peepers. Uh, now, the, the, I, uh, I hadn't heard that before. I don't know if that's, uh, is that something like more Eastern? It's a Northeastern thing. I don't know. Did Hopefully they call it? not just a me thing. No, I, I, I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, you're from New Jersey. You've spent a lot of time in, in Maine being in college. Uh, this was in North Carolina. Were they calling them peepers down in North Carolina? I don't know. I was no? on the bank of the river by myself, so I wasn't talking to any other humans. You, but you were talking to the frogs. I was talking to the frogs about uh, the race. What was yes. yes? What was what was their take on the on the <laughs> upcoming Republican primary runoff? So in, not all of them, as you would imagine, are registered Republicans. <laughs> okay. So they can't all vote on July 9th. but they're really interested, um, and I think they enjoyed hearing what I had to say about Joan Perry. Okay. So you mentioned this is, uh, all kidding aside, uh, this is a July 9th Republican primary runoff. Uh, this is for the seat that uh, became vacant when Walter B. Jones, longtime uh, Republican representative from the area, died earlier this year. Uh, and we are in a runoff now. Let's talk about the two candidates and how some of the political dynamics in Washington have filtered their way into this race. Yeah. So the top two finishers in that April 30th primary were Dr. Greg Murphy. He is a urologist and surgeon, uh, and Dr. Joan Perry. She's a pediatrician. She finished second, but because Murphy failed to surpass 30% of the vote, she was able to request a runoff. So why this race is getting national attention, Perry, the pediatrician, uh, she represents the Republican Party's best chance to add another woman in the House. There are currently 13 Republican women in the House. That's down from 23 the previous Congress. Indiana Representative Susan Brooks, one of those 13 women, has already announced that she is not running for re-election in 2020, so they're going to have even fewer women. And why this particular seat is so exciting to Republicans in D.C. who care about electing more women is because it's a safe Republican seat. Donald Trump carried this district in 2016, Mm -hmm. which means that unlike, say, the Barbara Comstocks, the Mia Loves, the Karen Handels, these are Republican women who got wiped out last fall. She doesn't represent a swing district. And so she, if she were to be elected, um, doesn't potentially uh, run the same risk of right. being defeated in a democratic way. Right. She could hold the seat for a long time if you're here to win. Exactly. So so Joan Perry, as you, as you mentioned, she is a pediatrician. Um, she she came in second in the, in the runoff. Uh, let's talk about the urologist in the race and who is supporting him, because there is uh, there's a little bit of a division in the Republican ranks here in Washington over that. Yeah. So Greg Murphy, 
He is backed by Mark Meadows. He is a North Carolina congressman, also happens to be the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, more conservative hardline organization within the House GOP. Um, Meadows was down in North Carolina with me all weekend campaigning for Murphy. Jim Jordan, the Ohio congressman and former chairman of the Freedom Caucus, was with Murphy the previous weekend. The House Freedom Fund and House Freedom Action, which are sort of the political entities of the House Freedom Caucus, are spending on television ads for Murphy. Meadows is making the case that as a strong ally of President Trump, he needs an ally in Murphy. Um, Sort of an awkward bedfellow situation, given that Murphy has actually sponsored a version of Medicaid expansion in the state that Meadows had said he probably wouldn't have supported and certainly wouldn't have supported at the federal level. Well, he's a doctor. What does he know (laughs) (laughs) about Medicaid and these sort of issues? (laughs) That's an attack you're hearing Perry launch against Murphy. So Mm -hmm. right now, the way it's set up is you've got the Freedom Caucus, all the men, I should say, in the Freedom Caucus, there's one woman in the Freedom Caucus, Debbie Lesko, mm-hmm. and she is actually siding with all the other Republican women in Congress and backing Perry. Okay. So it's all the Republican women versus the Freedom Caucus. And then just this week, you've had several other male members of the Republican Party come out and support Perry. So you could look at it two ways. One, you've got Republicans in Washington who really want to see um, the party diversify. Mm-hmm. And that includes, for example, Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Um, minority Leader. Yes, sorry, uh, Minority Leader. Uh, he, he was Majority Leader. Uh, <laughs> at but, one time. Right. And McCarthy actually made some comments about this at a, at a fundraiser, right, yeah. for for the uh, group. And, and, and Remind me the name of the group where he spoke. Winning for Women Winning is an for outside women. group that supports women in primaries. It should be noted the NRCC, the House campaign arm, does not play in primaries. So it's kind of interesting to hear the de facto Republican leader come out and say that we need to play in primaries. Right. Let's hear what he had to say at this uh, at Winning for Women event. We know the importance of women. We know the importance that we will never be a majority party if we don't achieve this. We won't even come close. Even if we achieve this, there's a chance we won't be a majority. 53% of the electorate in the next presidential race are going to be women. Our biggest challenge in the last election was women and college graduates. Pretty strong words. So fairly blunt and straightforward political talk right there uh, from McCarthy saying that we have to change the dynamics here. Uh, is, is there also, uh, I mean, you, you hinted at this a little bit in your story, that there may also just be some people who are like, we just really don't want another person in the Freedom Caucus. Yeah, and that's where this <laughs> is complicated. It's really nice to say, oh, we just want to elect more women. We can't ignore that there is an ideological proxy battle happening here. And that's something you heard from the, the Murphy supporters. I spoke to the chairwoman of this group called Women for Trump, Amy Kramer. She's a failed Georgia congressional candidate who has somehow taken it upon herself to lead this group. They go around to different events. They campaign with Murphy. They sell their pink T-shirts. Um, so she was there with her teacup multi-poo, Maggie May. What, um, and, and that is a dog. That's, <laughs> that's a dog. Not a frog. No, not a frog. <laughs> she was explaining to me uh, that it's sexist and it's insulting to assume that women would support candidates just because they have the same body parts as them, and that if that were the case, she would have backed Hillary Clinton. And so she was launching attacks on Elise Stefanik, for example, who is the New York congresswoman who has made it her effort to try to play in primaries this cycle to elect more women, saying, 
you know, she doesn't support Trump. She's got a moderate voting record. Of course, Stefanik wants more allies in Congress, just as Meadows does. And she was really setting up this power struggle. Stefanik, for her part, has said that her leadership pack will support women from all ideological stripes in the Republican Party. She just wants those candidates to be qualified to earn her endorsement. And you had uh, sort of an interaction with uh, with Kramer at one of these events in which uh, she she told you about a syndrome you didn't know existed. That's right. So Kramer was making the point that women all across the district support Murphy and they support Trump. And I was really curious where that was coming from, given that Trump didn't do so great with women in 2016. And I was curious, you know, how she thinks he's going to do in 2020. She assured me that he's going to do really well just on the, the people that she's talked to. And she blamed the media in part for this syndrome that she described, Trump derangement syndrome, uh, that is, is essentially keeping people from expressing publicly their support of the president. Well, wait, let's listen to this clip then. Trump derangement syndrome, TDS. Tell me what that is. Trump derangement syndrome? Trump derangement syndrome. It's, it's um, I mean, people that hate this president. That they're, I mean, it's the people, the snowflakes that can't, that are triggered by a red MAGA hat. I mean, if you're on Twitter, you see it everywhere, Trump derangement syndrome. So you're trying to appeal to those people to get them? No, I'm not trying to appeal to them. What I'm, there are people that the Trump derangement syndrome is so bad that people are afraid of being attacked because they support this president. The Trump derangement syndrome is so bad. The left is, you know, attacking Trump supporters it because they have Trump derangement syndrome. And I'm saying we're bringing people together to say it's okay to support this president. I see. Uh, so your your takeaway from from your travels there, I mean, you, you it was kind of a whirlwind tour, but, um, you know, this, as you said, this is a safe Republican district. I mean, the, the action really is in this primary for the most part. Um, and what what do you what did you take away from that overall from your reporting just being able to be in the district on the ground? Yeah, so it's interesting to see the contrast. You know, up here in Washington at this Winning for Win event last week, what you hear is what a huge opportunity this is to diversify the Republican Party and what kind of message that would send to other Republican candidates, women who might be considering running, and how that could potentially improve the image of the party going forward in 2020. In this district specifically, I would say gender is not as much of a thing, right? I mean, like all Republican primaries, what they're really after here is loyalty to Trump. So you ask the candidates, you know, are there any areas where you disagree with the president? Of course not. Um, It's really about, you know, who can be the most conservative, as all primary contests on the right are. But it was really interesting to hear when Perry was going door to door, she didn't shy away from kind of using uh, the gender card in an interesting way. She would introduce herself, say that she was a pediatrician, that she was the mom of five boys, and that there has never been a Republican woman physician in Congress. And she was kind of using that angle to say, like, hey, I'm the outsider here. I'm running against a state legislature, but I'm the one who's done something different. I'm the one who would bring a different perspective to Congress. Uh, and I take it there hasn't been a ton of polling either in, in the district. So we really, I mean, we have to kind of go on feel on this, right? Yeah. What I've heard sort of privately from folks following the race in the state is that it's very close. You probably wouldn't have had Meadows and Jordan down there for the length of time that they were if they weren't feeling some some nerves. Mm-hmm. Well, Simone, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. We're going to take a step off of the campaign trail and return to Capitol Hill. 
Committee on the Judiciary Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties will come on to June order. June 19th, June 19th, 2019, there was a hearing in the House Judiciary Committee Civil Rights Subcommittee on reparations. This is an issue that has been in the public domain for quite some time, and it made its return to Capitol Hill. Clyde McGrady, one of our Heard on the Hill reporters, was there to cover it. Clyde, let's talk about this hearing. Uh, the, the the way that you described it in your story in Roll Call made it sound like uh, there was a lot going on. Yeah, uh, it was a very emotionally charged atmosphere. I mean, even um, uh, before the hearing, the hallway was jam-packed with uh, people trying to get in. I mean, Capitol Hill police were trying to clear them, you know, away from the door. At a certain point, they just stopped letting people in. We need to get in a single-file line or no one's getting in. But I managed to get in at about 10 minutes before. Of course, there was uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, uh, who was the first witness on the second panel after uh, Cory Booker, who has a bill to address reparations. He testified in the first panel. But then Ta-Nehisi Coates, whose essay in 2014 that he wrote in The Atlantic, The Case for Reparations, really uh, reignited uh, this debate around reparations. So for the first time, you know, in more than a decade, the House was uh, having a debate on it. And specifically, they wanted to debate H.R. 40, uh, which is a bill that would commission a study to look at the impact of slavery and ongoing discrimination on um, black citizens in this country and what, if anything, could be done to remedy that. And even the number of the bill has a resonance for, for African-Americans and descendants of slaves. Yeah, yeah. Field Order 15 uh, issued by General Sherman, the Union Union General during the Civil War, promised 40 acres and a mule to uh, to ex-slaves. Talk a little bit about Coates in particular. It's rare that uh, an intellectual and a writer gets the sort of top billing, even over prominent celebrity advocates like Danny Glover was there. Mm-hmm. But I mean, the, the top billing really was Coates. What was it like covering him and 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 the reaction to him from members of Congress? Yeah, so when he wrote this article in 2014, I don't think he he has said he did, he did not expect it to have the impact that it that it did. You know, he's often said he's he's just a writer explaining America, but then it really took off. He said once he was in a restaurant in Harlem and someone, you know, came up to him and got him to sign a copy of the essay. So it, it really resonated with a lot of people, so he he has felt the responsibility to really push for H.R. 40 and kind of go from, you know, journalist to more of an advocate, though he still hopes to do more journalism, but for this particular issue, he is now an advocate. Let's talk about some of the members uh, of, of Congress that uh, that spoke or, or did not speak uh, mm-hmm. during during this hearing. You have some some real firebrands in, <laughs> in the House Judiciary Committee. It's known for being a fairly partisan place. But let's talk about uh, some of the, the people who stood out either by what they said or what they didn't say. You have to mention that um, attendance on the Republican side was pretty sparse. There were only uh, uh, a couple who, who came in. Uh, Jim Jordan came in but, but didn't ask questions. Um, Louis Gohmert. Um, <laughs> From, from Texas, uh, from, from some, Texas, who's known for you know his uh, not being at a loss for words on yeah, any colorful. topic. He spent a lot of time, you know, he talked about the death penalty and how he was pro uh, death penalty for the men 
who were convicted of killing uh, James Byrd in 1998, dragging him behind this truck in Texas, which mm-hmm. was a pretty notorious hate crime. And he also talked about... I also heard a colleague talking about it is critical to know our history. And uh, I have some screenshots here from the Democratic Party's history that says our history. Uh, there's no reference in the history of the Democratic Party platform supporting slavery. So it was a bit more partisan from him, but on the on the Democratic side, Representative Karen Bass of California probably had the most um, emotionally impactful moment, uh, in my view. We have a short clip that we're going to play of, of that. So our fundamental problem is our ignorance of history or our refusal to admit it. We, everyone understands the pain caused by people who deny the Holocaust. Deep pain is caused by this. And deep pain is caused by our country that cannot acknowledge what has happened here. Can we, in this country, have a conversation about race? We will never get past it until we can have the conversation. And the conversation begins with a commission. Thank you. And, and Bass, we should mention, too, is the, the chairwoman of the Congressional Black Caucus. So, I mean, like, there, there's some leadership, you know, or, or leadership of organizations within the Congress, you know, sort of at play here. Jim Jordan of the House Freedom Caucus. Bass leads the CBC. So you have different, you know, uh, sort of flanks of the, of the two parties, like, you know, being represented here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the original bill was introduced by uh, retired Representative John Connors, Conyers who is kind of the dean of the Congressional Black Caucus. He introduced this in 1989, but it hasn't gone anywhere until Coates' essay, really. We talked about H.R. 40 and the significance of the, of the number 40 uh, for, for this issue and for, for African Americans. But like, talk about why it was important to have this on Juneteenth, on, on, the, on the day of June, Juneteenth. The, the last slaves to discover that they were emancipated were in Texas, and they found out on June 19th. 1865. Of course, the Emancipation Proclamation was issued uh, in 1863. Yeah, so, January yeah, 1863. Yeah, and and even the Civil War ended that April. So, I mean, you're talking two months after the Civil War and almost two and a half years after Emancipation Proclamation that they found out they were free. So, it's um, it it's a pretty uh, significant day for African Americans and in African American history. When you went there, when you you came back, I mean, we had you you very busy that day. You had to cover it. You had to write it up. And then we also brought you into the studio to get your impressions right in the moment. Um, I want to play, you know, just some of the clips of of you sort of speaking right after this hearing. Uh, Representative Steve Cohen, who presided over the hearing, uh, tried his best uh, to get order and, you know, asked the audience not to respond uh, to witness or lawmaker statements, but people... You know, they booed, they clapped, they hissed. There were even some amens that kind of made it, you know, feel like church. Um, But again, this was a very emotionally charged issue. We're talking about, you know, slavery and discrimination and that legacy and, you know, how the country is going to address that. So people feel very strongly and very passionate about that issue. And it certainly came out in the hearing. So you've had some time to, to think about this. What's your takeaway? Well, there's definitely been a shift um, around the debate about reparations. And, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates has said that was his goal, to get people to stop laughing. Because in 2003, there was a uh, Chappelle show 
sketch in which Dave Chappelle, you know, imagined what would it be like if black people got these uh, cash payments from reparations. And, you know, there's all these stereotypes about a guy buying like menthol cigarettes or starting a rap record label. And the conceit is that it's so uh, preposterous to imagine that we'd ever get reparations so we can just make fun of it in this way. But now I think there are fewer people laughing. I mean, again, the fact that they even had this debate on Capitol Hill kind of signals that. And yeah, Mitch McConnell has said, you know, he's opposed to it. Donald Trump has even said it's something that he doesn't think will happen. But, you know, now Democratic candidates running in 2020 are getting questions about it. I think almost half of them have plans for some form of it. And again, Cory Booker has introduced his own Senate version of the bill. So it's, you know, it's starting to gain some traction and people are taking it more seriously, I think. Thank you for leading us through this, Clyde. Uh, I mean, it sounds like it was quite a, quite something to cover. And I mean, it sounds like we are probably going to be covering it a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, who knows uh, where this debate goes, but you could point to, you know, June 19th as a significant uh, turning point in the country's history. Who knows? Thanks again. That's going to do it for us today. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate us. Thanks for listening.